Welcome to this episode, in fact, the first episode of Tales from the Subterranean Playground, brought to you by Immersify Recording Services, LLC. I'm your host, Mark Allen Jay. In this episode, we're going to listen in on a hang that I had with four musicians. My guests that day were Mark Jewett, Amy Petty, Mike Harrington, and Billy Harrington all played on The Lucky One, which was written by Mark Jewett and recorded at Big Sky Recording in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The album was produced by Billy Harrington and also features Dale Griza, Sonia Lee, and Ken Pesek. So without further ado, let's get to that hang. I'm fortunate enough to have basically four of the seven principal players on the record is that right did we have a total of seven yeah i guess yeah Yeah. jason denny was in for a few minutes but uh yeah Yeah, i I think it was seven i have to count every time i go back because my my mental capacity only goes to three before i have to start (laughs) (laughs) checking my math (laughs) well well and also present with us are the brothers harrington (laughs) billy and michael uh Producer, yeah, thanks, you're Mark. more than welcome. Producer and uh, percussionist extraordinaire, Mike, guitarist, <laughs> and of course Amy. And Amy, actually, uh, I found out about Amy when I was involved in a gig over at Black Crystal. It was probably the first time I actually heard you sing. And I remember thinking, this girl's got some pipes. <laughs> not just not just because of the actual throw, the actual yeah. fortitude, but the timbre. That's one of the things I like about your singing. Awesome, thank on a, you. On a personal level, but Jeez, thanks. I know you mentioned, Mark, that this was kind of an organic process. This record, and I wonder if you can kind of talk to us a little bit about how this record differs from your prior EP and your prior full-length CD. I'm curious to know essentially where you were in your head, as it were, when this was coming together. The method doesn't differ that much um, because I've I've never assembled uh, a continuing band configuration that played these songs and rehearsed and 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 played them before audiences and then recorded them. Uh, they were almost always song sketches that I performed solo or with. Uh, a duo partner, and uh, some of them I, I I imagined the the ideal end result much more than others. But some of them were really song sketches when we brought them to the studio. Mm. Had, had you done any any of these as like a a duet with Amy before? Was this any? Have you tried out? Have you tried out any yes. of this material prior? Yeah, we played. Several. I'd, I'd yeah. have to go back and count, but probably at least five of them five in of them. in yeah. duo shows mm-hmm. for a couple of years. But you know, they still they they took a a little turn when we started adding instrumentation mm-hmm. and uh, critical decisions. I mean, for a lot of the duo gigs, we'd just show up and we know the structure and we mm-hmm. just play it. <laughs> <laughs> Not not a lot of rehearsal involved. Not a lot required. So the the involvement of the the other principal players on the effort. How tell me a little bit about how that actually came to be. Well, um, 
I think uh, some of it, you know, Billy and I talked about a little bit, like in pre-production, about how we wanted to uh, flesh out these songs. But I think um, the, the ideas, uh, many of them unfolded or, or revealed a place for themselves as the layers built up. Like, we, we didn't realize that a certain thing would sound good in this spot until we had everything else blended into the foundation up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, voices is a great example. I had, uh, I'd always suspected that, you know, maybe we want a stringed instrument. I thought maybe a cello or, or, or violin, but uh, the, the variety of parts that Sonia brought to that song I, I never imagined. That was a kind of a mind-blowing day. And if you could just mention her like background, her thing, oh, and well, how that actually came to be. Well, that is actually kind of a, a it's not a funny story, but uh, funny curious. I had seen her at the Black Crystal Cafe mm-hmm. uh, supporting Jeff Scott in a show, and I saw her again at 20 Front Street supporting, well, she was a part of Olivia Millerson's Christmas show there. And I met her in the lobby, and I, I was just kind of fascinated with her, her, her obviously her playing and her presence and the, and the, the energy she brought to the music. And then you know that was it. A couple of years passed by, and we we didn't cross paths again. And uh, my wife Deb, she works uh, at an ice, a couple of different ice arenas, and it turns out Sonia has a daughter that's a figure skater, hmm. and. Deb noticed her coming in like a couple times a week regularly carrying this violin case. And they got to talking, and Deb said, well, you know, my husband plays music. And she goes, well, um, I I don't know what their whole conversation entailed, but 
they somehow came upon a link with the Black Crystal Cafe and Jeff Scott, and, and Deb was describing this woman. And I and I, I, I vaguely remembered it, and I said, was her name, um, started with an S. Uh, was it was it Sonia? She goes, I, I think it was. And then I, I dug, dug a little further, and actually did some googling and i thought was it sonia lee she goes yes i think and i thought oh she's awesome <laughs> she's awesome and uh she is definitely classically trained uh she was the concert master violinist in the Tor- uh, toronto symphony orchestra for four years wow. and now she coaches violinists in the dso the detroit symphony and um she's just got a musical pedigree that's hard to match mm-hmm. <laughs> and the the amazing thing about her is she's so well-rounded she she really enjoys playing with singer-songwriters she she really likes to have a hand in in, in creating music she knows how to improvise um, extremely well <laughs> uh, which is n- not uh, a given trait for a classically trained orchestral musician, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know she can play the the solo from Bob O'Reilly by the Who just <laughs> and blow your hair back, um, the same as she can do. You know. Well, if you would, I, I don't know if you want to like give away any trade secrets secrets or whatnot, but the point uh, you made earlier about how the timbre of that was altered. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? Because it does have an unusual overall character in the piece. Well, I, I think the way she was miked um, and the, the quality of her instrument and the way she plays it, it's, it's, it's all in the hands. <laughs> but in, in this recording, I can hear tone emanating from the wood not just the strings i mean you can hear the quality of the wood <laughs> and uh yeah. i i just think um it's it's more beautiful than you know just a the, the string sound by itself and happened to notice that um it it sits really nicely in the mix next to the particular guitar i played that day which wasn't mine uh we had we we cut it. We made a pass at cutting my track, and I was having an intonation problem on one string at a critical fret. And if I tuned it there, it was out of tune elsewhere. And Jeff Jeff Michael just said, "Here, well, why don't you try this one?" And he handed me this Gibson, and it had has a much more uh, warm belly tone than a Laravie that I play, and. Uh, it just—it was a happy accident. It well, just and it's, it's probably it's probably a good time to to throw some props Jeff's way for those uh, listening who don't know. Jeff runs Big Sky, which is a studio here in Ann Arbor, pretty much top shelf. And Jeff, um, a hell of a fine engineer, I have to say. Um, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just wanted to kind of. No, please. Um, he he deserves a lot yeah. of. Not not only did he technically engineer this uh very well he he offered opinions when we were kind of on the fence about issues about what what we might try and you know suggested things that he has in his outboard effects and um 
has he has a few trade secrets. But they work well. Yeah. He's done a few things. He's got a great mic locker, but the important thing is he knows how to use it. Right. He knows which right. mics work well with right. which kinds of voices and right. which instruments. Right. And in good rooms. You know, the mm-hmm. big room mm-hmm. has a certain quality to it, and right. so do the, the booths. I, I especially like the way vocals came out when they were done in the big room. Right. Yeah, yeah and he knew where to put us when right. we when we needed to be in a small room and when we needed to be in the big room. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. It. I think it's relatively easy to get a reasonably good sound, but it's that last... 10% or 3% that you're after and especially as you know as you all know how critical the mic distance relative to the instrument can be especially with strings you made the point about the sound of the body right mm-hmm. it's easy enough to miss that if you're not listening for it you know the, the energy that's transmitted down through the bridge into the body etc and the modes within the body that give it that character but because yeah, sure. it isn't easy he exploited all the beautiful things about that instrument. I mean, there are, are various ways to play the violin. If you go back to Jean-Luc Ponty mm-hmm. and, and, and a lot of things he's done, um, it's very synthy. Mm-hmm. And it's you're hearing almost all s- a string sound and processed string sound and, and a lot of facility in his hands. But, you know, this was different. This has... I, I think the violin of all instruments has the most human-like quality in its, in its timbre. And I think that's why it works so well in voices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's it, another voice. It's yeah, another it's, three it's or four a voices. Natural choice, I think. Yeah. 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 So, Billy, as producer, I'm I'm kind of curious because there are a lot of people I'm certain who've not set foot in a recording studio, and when you say producer, they have a vague idea of what the producer does. It's like. I think more people better understand when someone says that this is the film's director, right? That's, I think, a little bit more defined. If you wouldn't mind uh, kind of addressing this, is it fair to say that apart from the artistic elements, making everything fit? Um, First, I would say that the definition of music producer is so wide now because now it's like if you ask a 14-year-old, 15-year-old in high school, like, oh, are, you're a producer. And it's like, oh, oh okay, well, we must, we, we must do the same thing. What do you do? And, well, they might make stuff on their laptops and they work on tunes and they, they kind of woodshed and shop songs and give them to people. Or they work with a, an artist and say, here you go. This is more like being a conduit for the artist and then also having to see what they're doing, have an opinion, have a vision, and then either get the tools or delegate on how to get from point A to B, mm. or in this case, maybe C. You know. mm-hmm. um, and so uh, if I had to say a particular tune, um, hmm. Well, my, my favorite track is, is The Lucky One. It's the title track. And what I wanted to do with that was to sort of have this sort of wash and like a sheen over the whole tune. Um, I think in like colors and stuff like that. 
And so I wanted it to have kind of this like relaxed amber, you know, mellow a sort particular of thing. hue. Yeah, where everything sort of meets together. Um, and in the lucky one, you know, we I wanted to have tones that um, I don't know that sort of like gave off that gave off that vibe. So um, that was a demo that Mark gave me. It was vocal and guitar, which was beautiful. It was so good. Um, I wanted to make sure that we kept his voice in that same timbre the way it was. I didn't want to change it. And the guitar part and everything worked so well because it was so natural. And it made sense because, you know, Mark wrote the tune. He's singing it together, playing it together. Um, and so I don't want to get in the way of any of that stuff. I have to figure out how to put things in between it all. Can I, you know, can yeah. I say this? I, something I very distinctly remember is a moment when we were just kind of talking like off to the side mm -hmm. and we were talking about the lucky one in particular. And you said, I almost hate to put anything on this because the song is done already. Yeah, and I, I remember thinking, <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. And you were like, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to overdo this. I don't, mm -hmm. It, it doesn't need anything. Mm -hmm. And so now it's finding the things that just will like raise it support and I remember it. yeah support it raise yeah. it up and I that stayed with me for the remainder of our recording experience mm. that was a big deal if you got someone to love you and you've got someone to love You can thank your lucky stars When you look up above If you have friends, it seems You have known since you were born You're lucky cause you know They will be there in the morn You're a lucky one You're a lucky one Live each day as if your life had just begun You're a lucky one When your time is done You will still be a lucky one If your best friend wags his tail When you walk through the door you're Lucky just to be the one not love more If a song can make you smile Or a song can make you cry You're lucky cause you know What it's like to be alive You're a lucky one You're a lucky one So live each day As if your life had just begun Time is done You will still be a lucky one Well I tell myself these things Whenever I begin to doubt And to remind myself What life is all about One of the things I love on that is The paddle steel <laughs> 
Now, Mike, this is where you enter the conversation. And what was the path that took you to pedal steel? Um, well, I think the first time I ever heard a steel guitar was the James Taylor tribute show uh, rehearsal Downtown? that you went to. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so the rehearsal space was in Ipsy, and I remember setting up my guitar. I was playing electric for it, and uh, it was the first time I really met Drew Howard, too. And I didn't even know what this thing was. And I'm setting up my guitar, and I'm kind of going through stuff, trying to make sure I have everything ready for the rehearsal or whatever. And this guy, he's got a black top hat, black jacket black jeans black Man, guitar boy. for crying out loud black road cases and he's kind of setting up i don't really pay too much attention and then i'm kind of you know still working on stuff and then i hear this like sound it was just so different than anything i've ever heard you know and being in the actual room not hearing it on recording for the first time mm -hmm. like a guitar or like a you know most instruments you kind of i don't know for me at least i really didn't um see guitar the same way or get as exposed to it from a live setting like I kind of listened to music and knew what a guitar was but this was totally different thanks for listening in we'll chat more about the lucky one in future episodes but for now it's time to pull the faders down and say goodbye from the subterranean playground until next time peace Tales from the Subterranean Playground was produced and brought to you by Immersify Recording Services, LLC.